in chapter 3 this week, which uh, talks about salvation. And salvation is an interesting term, especially when you begin to look at it from Christianity's point of view. And I think one of the greatest questions that we can ask when we start talking about salvation is, what, what am I saved from? I, I love uh, a little parodies and little jokes and memes, as some of you found out last week. I, I kind of get the, a chuckle of different things that are online. And, and there's, there's a series of jokes about a little girl named Little Mary. And Little Mary and her dad were out on the water, and they were out uh, fishing and carrying on. And suddenly he falls off the, the side of the boat into the water, and he begins to yell, Help, sharks! Help, sharks! And Little Mary just laughed and laughed and laughed. She knew the sharks were not going to help him. Some of you might get that a little bit later on. I love that joke because it just doesn't make sense at all, but it, it, it actually does make sense to me in, in some way because w- when we talk to people or we share with people about the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, I think we kind of skip some steps and they get to a place to go, what am I actually being saved from or for or to? Now, while it's true the sharks are not going to help him, they might actually provide some measure of relief. So instead of drowning, the sharks may actually finish the job off for him anyway, right? But that's a temporary thing we're talking about on this earth. We're not talking about eternal life when we talk about those crazy sharks or the little girl who just watched that happen, right? It may as well be the same type of things when we talk to someone who has no relationship with God at all, who only thinks that he might exist but thinks that he doesn't care about me. And if he does care about me, why is he treating me the way that he does? Why does he allow bad things to happen to me? But uh, immediately someone just jumps in and says, listen, you need to have a relationship with God. You need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they're sitting there going, what do you mean a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ? I've been on multiple mission trips all over this beautiful world that God has created with some of the the most beautiful creatures of humanity that are so different from each of us in this room. Knowing that they are lost and never heard the true story of a God who created them, loves them, sent his son to die for them. And watching people with great and amazing hearts who take a week's vacation and they pay for their own trip and they end up someplace where they don't speak the language and they have got Jesus with them and they better hurry up and give it out to everybody who's there because they're taking him with him when they leave. I love the power and the, the energy that somebody has when they're on a mission trip because they, they suddenly for that one week they take a, a vacation from the rest of their life and they're on fire for God and they're ready to go out and just tell people about salvation that comes from this Jesus whom they've never heard of. I really do love that. I love sitting in the airport on the way home and talking to people about just the amazing week that they had. And I remember talking to somebody one day, and I said, you know, I love what you're thinking right now. I love the emotions that are stirred up in your heart. But I wonder if you'd do this with me, because I can have your home mortgaged before we leave this airport if you want to give everything you own to these people in this poor little country that you just served for the last six days. But I wonder if before we did that, you would sit down with me for the next 30 days and we would pray and we would fast and we would journal together about what God really wants to do with your life. Not just that one week while you were on a mission trip, but what God really wants to do with your life every single day. About the people you work with, you, you, you shop with, you go to school with. About those people who need that relationship with God. About those people who need to hear also, either for the first time or for the 400th time, that there is a God that created you and he loves you and he sent his son Jesus to die for you. I wonder if we could talk about the reality of your Jerusalem, not your Judea, your Samaria, or the ends of the earth, but about your Jerusalem for a moment, about the God that saved you where he found you in your little hometown church or in the living room or at camp or someplace like that, not the the God who found you when somebody from a foreign land who couldn't speak your language come to speak to you. Now, Now hear me clearly, I believe in missions. I believe we ought to go. 
I believe we need to go and share the gospel with people. Just yesterday, one of my dear friends was buried. He was 90 years old. He's one of the most godly men I've ever met in my entire life. And in his 80s, I served with him in Mongolia and in India. And a story was told at his funeral yesterday where we were at Mother Teresa's house trying to care for these men who had been dropped off on the doorstep and left to die. And I look over, and here's this man in his 80s, and he's, he's putting lotion on this atrophied old man. And I'm freaking out because this is the weirdest, grossest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I start to rationalize, and then I start to try to figure this out. Like, how in the world does this make sense? And what is he doing right now that matters for the gospel? And really, more than anything else, how does he do this? Because I am messed up right now. I am in a foreign country, 13-hour time difference, and I do not know what's going on in my world. And so that night, after I finally calmed down, took a lot of shower that I could, I just looked at him and I said, Holloway, how do you do this? And he says, son, don't you love Jesus? He said, it's really not that hard if you love Jesus. He said, and he told me a story of how he cared for his mother whenever she was, was sick and bedridden and was dying. How he remembers changing her bedding and her clothing just as she had done for him when he was unable to do so when he was younger. Friends, I believe with all my heart that we must ask this question this morning of how do I have a relationship with God? And maybe even further, how do others have a relationship with God? And to be perfectly honest, it's a great opportunity for us to reflect back upon our own relationship with God and what that says to others. Because if our relationship is not where it ought to be with God, how can we ever expect others to see a God who loved us in us and want that same relationship? So this morning, as we try to answer this question, we go to our Believe book and we see that one of the key ideals, and, and this is a key fundamental ideal for those who have professed Jesus Christ to hold on to. And it says simply, I believe a person comes into a relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We come into a relationship with God, by God, through grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that really messes with a lot of different theology systems because the ideal of works, earning our way towards salvation, is not accurate according to the teachings of the Scripture. In fact, works ought to be a response to God's grace in our lives, not a request. And so many times we get out and we serve and we go and we do and we get a little sweat equity into things and we miss the point that we're not trying to gather God's favor. We're responding to what God has already done for us. And in responding to what God has already done for us, we live a life of service. We live a life of joy and we live a life of good relationship with the God who created us. Not one that's separated from us, not one that's so ethereal that just exists, and I know he exists, but one who truly loves me and knows me and watches me as I'm about to commit the grievous of sins and says, I love you anyway. I don't condone what you're about to do. I don't like what you're about to do, but I love you anyway. I loved you so much, I sent my son to die for you. Friends, that's grace. That's sufficient grace. That's real grace because you know what? Anybody who's experienced that grace knows you do not deserve it. And yet, God gave it to us. If you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's really early in the Bible. It speaks into the creation story as 
God spoke everything into existence with his spoken word. As he created the man out of the dust and breathed life into his nostrils, he put a spirit within him as well. When he saw that the man was alone, he, he noticed that he was alone and said this was for the first time. Everything in the garden which was perfect, it was not good that Adam was alone. And so he, he caused Adam to, to sleep and he took a rib from him and he created this woman and he presents this woman to Adam. And Adam says, she's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and what God has put together, let no one separate. And so we are now one. Now, men, let me just be honest with you for a moment. If God has given you a wife, he has given you grace. Ladies, if God has given you a husband, he has given you a reason to pray. From the very beginning, God realized that relationships were important, not just earthly human relationships, but relationships with him. It is not good for a man to be alone, and not to stretch the theology too much, but realistically, it's not good for us to be alone, separated from God either. And when we sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden, Man became separated from a God who loved him and walked with him and spent every waking moment with him that he possibly could. There was no death. There was no decay. There was no hurt. There was no harm. Adam and Eve walked around naked for crying out loud. They didn't complain about it being nine degrees outside. They had everything they needed in this garden. And God put in the garden two trees, we're told. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and one is the tree of life. And he said to them, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for as soon as you do, you will surely die. The serpent, who was more crafty than all the other animals, came to Eve, and he tempted her. And she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good to eat, and she ate it and offered some to Adam. And when she did so, both of their eyes were open, and immediately the relationship was severed between God the creator and man who he walked around in the garden they noticed they were naked and for the first time they were naked and they were ashamed the scripture tells us and they hid from God and I've said this a hundred times but it is still my greatest rhetorical question of all time as God walks through the garden and Adam is hiding Adam where are you of course God knows where Adam is I'm hiding because I'm naked and God says who told you you were naked who gave you this knowledge of your nakedness? Who told you you were exposed, no longer covered by? You know what Adam said? It's this woman you gave me. <laughs> and so in Genesis chapter 3, we pick up in verse 21, and I want to read kind of the end of that story. Because this was God's grace poured out upon mankind. And it says, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, us, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was with him at the very beginning. That is an assumption we make of Christianity, and it's a true assumption for us to make. He's now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, let's just kind of have a little imagination for a moment. Because there's a lot happening just in these few verses. Man has sinned, and the first thing God did was say, listen, you're, you're no longer in right relationship with me. And while the scripture doesn't implicitly pour this out, it says that he took the skins of an animal. Blood was shed and covered their nakedness, but then cast them away from his holiness. And he sent them away from the garden. 
and seeing that the one instruction that God had given to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. God said that if they will not obey that one command that I give to them, the last thing they need to do is grab fruit from the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. Because that's what the tree of life does for us. You can go to Revelation chapter 20 and 21 and see where the the tree of life blooms 12 times a year, where the, the river flows through it, and it is in abundance. And there are lots of different types of fruit that are hung on that tree, and it changes every month. I look forward to that day. Because not only will I be amongst the tree of life, and I'll see that I will be in right relationship with my God, my Creator, in full fellowship with Him in heaven forever and ever. And the only reason I know that to be true is because I have received the grace that comes to me through Jesus Christ. But before all that happened, this happened in the garden. And so the scripture says that he put a a cherubim, a flaming sword, standing at the east of the garden. Now, I went back to research a little bit, and I said, well, what about the, the west and the north and the south? And one commentator made a really great point I want to share with you today. Everything started in the Garden of Eden, and the sun that rises in the east and sets in the west, everything from that moving forward was God's creation. And so I'm not a flat earth person, so don't get the wrong thing for a moment, right? But this is where everything started, and everything forward went that way. And God said, you now must leave this garden. Well, where's that flaming sword today? Why isn't it there? Why haven't we found the Garden of Eden? Because at that point, when sin entered the world, it brought death with it by one man, Adam. And when that happened, decay and everything else happened on this earth, including the garden, which was no longer in right relationship with its creator. All of creation was set aside because the pinnacle of creation, Adam, had violated God's one rule, do not eat from this tree. And if you do so, you will know good and evil just like I do. I tell you that story so we understand that all of humanity faces the same problem with sin that Adam did and certainly the same consequences as Adam does. Because prior to that time, we don't know how God would have let the rest of, of humanity played out. But what we do know is that God knew it was going to happen. I could get into all the theology of those, those things and, and get into the, the linear parts of time and space and realizing that as, as mere mortals, we are limited by time and space. I get into all those things, but the reality is just simply this. A decision was made that was against God's rule, and because it was against God's rule, what happened was is that that passed on, and the stain of sin passed on to every single person who was born after that. And right relationship with God was no more. And man needs to be saved from a bad relationship with God, which gives him eternal life, not eternal death. By grace, God put the cherubim there to stop them from going and grabbing from the tree of life and living forever in their sinful state. And I do mean forever, eternally. He says, if I give this to them, they will live this way forever, and this is not how I want my creation. I want to dwell with them. Leviticus 26, 12 tells us that the dwelling place of God is with man, and it was always his plan to be with man. And when man sinned, he no longer became acceptable to stand in the holiness of an all-knowing, all-loving Father and God. And because of that, we have to be separated from that. Now, let's time out for just a second. John, that sounds great. I grew up in church. I know those stories. I understand that. That theology sounds good because I've received grace. I know who Jesus is, and I'm saved. That all sounds good to me. Think about for just a moment someone who's never heard all that story and know it to its fullness. Where are they with that? And how are you going to tell them that? I love to preach. I am scared to death every Sunday morning when I step into this pulpit that I'm going to get something wrong. I had a mentor many years ago when he was talking to me about doing this. 
I said, I don't want to do that, man. I just, that's too much stress. That's too much pressure. I don't want to do that. I said, I am frightened every Sunday morning. He says, good, maybe you'll do better next Sunday. You know what? I agree with him. I'm going on six straight years of doing this. God's blessed me. I think I've gotten a little better at my craft. I don't know how much better. You don't have to agree with me on that. But I do know this. I have been given a a bird's nest view of watching God's grace in people's life. And I have been burdened, particularly this last year, that we are not well equipped as a body of Christ to tell people who are so distant from a relationship with God about the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Every judgment we get as Christians of being preachy and being judgmental and everything else has a merited place where it comes from. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but I can't tell you that in a lot of ways it's not true because it is. And I think simply it's because we miss the reality of understanding what it is people are being saved from and to. And we skip over that a little bit. And do you know why we do that? Because we're not in good relationship with people who need to hear the gospel. We don't find ourselves entrenched with people that we classify as lost. We don't spend time with those in their environment, not seeing if we can resist the temptations of this world, but demonstrating a love for them in such a way that I would go the extra mile to spend time with you so that I can demonstrate Christ's life in my life. This is exactly what Jesus did. He was born, he left heaven, he came fully God and fully man, lived a sinless, perfect life, even though he was tempted beyond belief, beyond what any of us have ever been tempted. And he resisted that temptation. And in doing so, he became the perfect, spotless lamb, the one and only final sacrifice for all mankind. And blood again was spilt, just like it was in the garden that day, to cover up, not cover over, cover up Adam's sin, at least to the point to where God could give him opportunity for redemption. That's grace. That's opportunity. And so how do I have a relationship with God? That's the question we want to try to answer this morning. And I think the first thing we do is you have to know that you need one. You have to know that you need one. Now think for a moment, how long have you been a Christ follower, if you are indeed a Christ follower this morning? How long have you, have you known about this story that I just shared to you and believed it to be factual truth and to see that God has done great things for you? And when is the last time you truly just stopped and reflected for a moment, just says, you know what, I need this relationship with God. I need it in such a way that if I didn't talk with God, an emptiness would overwhelm me. A, a, a void would be in my life. If I didn't spend time with him, knowing him in his word, in prayer, in time with other believers, if I missed out on those things, there would be something missing. Do you know that you need a relationship with God? Most people don't know that they need a relationship with God, but they do know they need to be saved. And usually they know they need to be saved from their current circumstances, from their current problems, from the current things that the world is making hard for them. They even need to be saved sometimes from their own stupidity, just like we do, because we wonder why bad things happen when we make bad decisions. Am I the only one? Maybe a more appropriate prayer sometimes would be, God save me from myself. Save me from the stupidity I'm about to commit. I've told you many a time, my dad's the wisest man I know, and he's reminded me over and over that watching me is like watching stupidity in slow motion. It, especially in my younger years. It's like I can just see you contemplating the outcome of a bad decision that you're already committed to make. And you're mitigating the circumstances and, and the consequences, not the decision. 
okay, God, if I just make this little lie, can I fix it down the road? Okay, God, if I just steal a little bit from the company, can I slowly pay it back? Okay, God, if I lie to my spouse today, can I bring flowers or beef jerky, whichever spouse is lying, and fix this? God, if I just dip my toe into the water of temptation and sin, but not don't go all in, is, is that just like a white lie? God, what am I being saved from? I'm being saved from a void, a lack of relationship with my creator. Zephaniah 1.17 says this. The prophet Zephaniah is one of our minor prophets. We studied this summer, and he says, I will bring, this is God speaking, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Boy, that's, that's, that's mean. That's cruel. That's disgusting. But this is God defining those who have chosen other than him, who have chosen to live a life that does not have relationship with God, does not glorify God, that is not in the right place. They are walking around like blind people, groping in the darkness for whatever they can get hold of. They are seeking help and seeking refuge and seeking a way out, and they don't even know what they're seeking for, but they're certain that they need it. They're certain that they need it because what they've been doing doesn't work anymore. And then when God calls them to be groping around in darkness and blindness, they can't find a better answer. Because do you know why? The world does not have the answer to the relationship problem that God solves. It does not. Pick an addiction. Just pick one of them. And I will tell you, every single addiction is followed up by there is a void in a relationship almost always. There was a damage, there was a hurt, there was a lie, there was a betrayal, there was an abuse. There's something back there in that relationship that has fed to this addiction because somewhere we tried to find refuge and strength in this addiction to overcome whatever that problem was that damaged that relationship. And the real problem is that we're not addicted to Jesus and we ought to be. Because we don't realize that there's a lost and dying people out there who are groping around in the darkness, and God's judgment is going to come upon them. And they will have no hope like we have as followers of Christ. Be assured, Christ followers, we will be judged for every action. But it is grace that will bring us through that judgment and put us in right relationship with our Creator. It's that same grace that we ought to be telling people who don't have that relationship with God. That everything that you're doing now may feel good, it may fix a temporary problem, but it is not long-standing. And it will not take long for you to get away from all those things and all the darkness is going to overwhelm you and you will be in a hole you cannot get out of. Just as we spoke of David many weeks ago, he is singing the wrong song in that pit, and it's time to put a new song in his heart. God says, for those who don't receive my new song, I've got this for them. They'll grope around in the darkness, and I will empty them out, pour it out like dust in their entrails like dung. We can't start with just the fear and the damnation and the scary and all those other things, but we can't skip on that either. We have to be realistic about people understanding that they need salvation. Dr. Phil, the great theologian of the 20th century, he actually asked a pretty good question every time he'd have those crazy people on TV. How's that working out for you? God, I've tried this. God's not pragmatic. God, I've attempted this. God really doesn't care about your efforts. He cares about your heart. He cares about your relationship with him. 
He cares that you're honest enough to know that he already knows everything you're about to lie to him about. He cares that you need him. And he is more than willing to make himself available. In your life, do you know that you need God? And do other people see that your life is dictated by the relationship you have because you realize your absolute desperate need for him? That you are tired of groping around in the darkness? That you realize there is no entrance back into that garden except through Jesus himself? And were I to find it, that flaming sword would put an end to me. But instead, God said, no, don't go back to there. There's but one way to me, and that's through Jesus. So many times when we get into a stressful environment, we get into uh, hard times, we revert back to old vices that comforted us but for a moment. And we don't realize that the oldest of vices should be God himself. That we run back to him, and he is there and faithful for us. And he wants that relationship. The second thing I would tell you this morning is that you have to actually want that relationship. Now, that, that's a tricky one. Okay. I want to be rescued. I want my life to be better. I want my circumstances to be other than what they actually are. But if you really pay attention to all those statements, this is about what I want. This is about my immediate needs, my temporal needs. But do you really want to be rescued and saved? In other cultures, you might find people who worship, especially polytheistic uh, worship societies where they have lots of different gods for different things. And my, my friend, uh, um, uh, Aru, years ago, we were driving down I-10, and he had a little statue of Vishnu, the god of vengeance in the Hindu uh, uh, theology. And, and I asked him one day, I said, what, what is this? He goes, that's Vishnu. I said, what does Vishnu do for you? And he goes, Vishnu helps me get through traffic. And I'm like, dude, we're in Houston. How's that working out for you? Right? It was a Dr. Phil moment for us. And he says, well, I'm just afraid if I don't pray to Vishnu, then, then I'm not going to get through traffic. I'm like, well, what's everybody else's problem? Are you actually believing that they're not praying to Vishnu and that's why traffic's as bad as it is on I-10? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I said, you know what I'm hoping for? What's that? I said, I'm hoping you watch Vishnu get flat on his face before a holy God. I'm hoping you see that and you realize, man, this Vishnu guy's a clown. He's, he has no power. I said, but Aru, what you want is not a relationship with Vishnu. You want to get through traffic. What I want is a relationship with my creator. What I want is to know that even in my sinful state, that I am indeed blessed and loved by my creator. What I know is that no matter what I have done, it is not condoned, it is neither condemned because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I want that relationship with him because I have tried everything else and it didn't satisfy. Luke chapter 16, we read the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, not the Lazarus that Christ raised from the dead, but a different man named Lazarus. And, and, and in this story, we see the rich man who had everything that he ever wanted, and, and he would sit and eat, and the poor man would sit, and he would look in at the man eating and just pray that the crumbs would fall to this table. And the, the scripture even says the dogs would come up and lick him and his sores and everything else. And he see this great disparity on one side of the wall from the other. Well, both of those men die, and they find themselves at a place of judgment. Now, Lazarus is with Abraham, and the rich man is in Hades, as the Scripture tells us. Now, this is what I find particularly interesting, because the rich man cries out, Father Abraham, because he was a relative, and everybody knew Abraham, and if you were Jewish, you just thought for sure you were the chosen people, and you were going to be in paradise with God forever, and that's not the case. And he cries out, and he goes, Father Abraham, I'm in torment. And beside Father Abraham was this guy, Lazarus. And he says, I'm in torment down here. 
Can you help me just a little bit? And the scripture says this in Luke 16, verse 22 and 24. It says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. Boy, everybody wants salvation when it's too late, isn't it? Everybody wants just, this guy, he's, he's actually accepted his eternity. He's just asking for a little relief. Well, isn't that a scary place? I've had conversations with people before. Hey, I know I'm going to hell. I may as well just enjoy life while I can. You know, you've had those conversations too. It just doesn't sound as blunt as that. Hey, you only live once, right? If God's created all these things out here for me to enjoy, why can't I enjoy them? It's a very Epicurean way of looking at life. Why can't I just enjoy them? After all, God created everything. He must have enjoyed these things for my pleasure, right? And God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? If God wants me to be happy, why does he have all these rules for me not to do those things? Because God wants you to be joyful, and joy only comes from the Lord. Your happiness right here on earth is secondary, and it will never be fulfilled. And until you realize that you want salvation, it may be too late like this man Lazarus here. It's funny, as that story continues on, Abraham and the rich man are having this conversation, and he even says after this, he says, well, look, even if I wanted to get down there and give one little drop of water on your tongue, the distance between us is so great that it can't happen. Now, isn't that interesting? I can hear you, I can see you, and we can have a conversation, but I cannot get to you because the chasm is too wide for me to rescue you. You see, folks, that chasm is death and life. And the only way you come from death to life is through Jesus Christ. And until we live lives as Christians that make that desirable for others, till we show them that salvation is necessary and available, there is nothing about our lives that speaks to crossing that chasm. People are going to need to want salvation, and if they're getting all those other pleasures of the world, that's not what they're seeking after. And you know how you get them to seek after salvation and to want that? You have a relationship with them. You spend time with them. You talk to them. You pray with them. You pray for them. You serve them unconditionally. You love them just as Christ has loved you. The third thing I see here when it comes to salvation and how I can have a relationship with God is that I have to actually accept him. I think perhaps one of the scariest things that we see in all of humanity is this belief that because God loves me, he'd never judge me the way the Bible says that he will. And that because I'm part of the greatest creation that that God has ever made, I'm already going to be okay. And that heaven is waiting for me, and I'm going to go there because I'm a good person. Because I have done good things for people. This morning, and we were talking with a, a friend back there, and, and, and we were just talking about the different things, uh, about, about masks of all those things. Isn't that a fun conversation? And, and one comment that I made was when people say, well, you know, you don't wear one because you don't care about other people. And I said, just challenge them with this. How much money have you given to charity last, last year to help feed starving people? I mean, if we're going to put parameters on how I do or don't love other people, then let's just go ahead and cover everything, right? Because all you have to do is just say that I don't do this because I don't do this, and it's suddenly true in today's world, and it's not. But the truth of the matter is that when we we look at the salvation that is offered to us, we have to actually accept that. And, And what I mean by that is to understand that a gift has been presented to us for the taking. And there is nothing that causes us to earn that or deserve it, but yet the gift of salvation is presented to us, and we have to actually say, I want that. 
I want that. I want the guarantee that I have eternity mapped out forever and ever. This eternity that God put into my heart like he did with all creation, I want eternity with my creator. I want that. I have to actually accept that. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 is a familiar verse for many people on the Roman road of salvation where we, we try to lay it out for people to say that there's a God who loves you and he wants that relationship with you if you will but only reach out and take what he's offering. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Well, can't I just believe and go on about the rest of my life? Can't I'm kind of introverted. I, I don't. I don't like being in front of people and doing all these things. Folks, can I just can I just call time out on that for just a second? That's probably the nicest thing I can say is time out. When you are fundamentally and radically changed by the love of Jesus Christ in your life, there's not anybody you ought not be out there talking to. I once was lost and now I'm found. If you go back to the prodigal son, you will see the great rejoicing that the father had when his son was lost and he was found. And he told everybody. Scripture tells us there's great rejoicing in heaven over one who comes to faith. He says that the, the shepherd would leave the 99 who were good to go after the one because they're that valuable. I understand some of you are very introverted. I'm not, I'm not bashing you on that. I'm just saying that the supernatural, overwhelming love of God, when it enters into your heart, it fundamentally changes you to your very core. And some people hide behind a lot of different reasons for not accepting the free gift. Well, if God knew everything about me, he'd never let me in. That's the worst part. He does know everything about you, and he still wants to let you in. Well, you just don't know my life. No, I don't, but I do know mine, and I know what God did in my life. I know that I did believe in my heart that God is real and those things happened in the garden and sin and death entered with Adam and Jesus brought in the solution to that. And because he did so, I can have the assurance of my salvation. Does that mean I'm going to be perfect? I'm going to stop sinning? No, it doesn't. It just means that I'm going to look at sin in a completely different way. It's no longer going to be something that I did. I'm just going to write it off and hope everybody forgets about it. It's Instead, it's going to be something that I'm going to do all I can and never do that again because my relationship with God has been severed, and I don't like that. I don't like giving God the cold shoulder. I don't like turning my back on Him. I don't like hiding elements of my life from a God who already knows them. It's not only that I'm unsuccessful at it, but it severs my relationship with him. And I want to receive that free gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, this is the, the verse that's actually in Believe this week. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. I said earlier, and I'm going to say it again, our works should be a response to God's grace in our life, not a request. What we do for God's kingdom ought to be not just to show everybody, look at me, I'm saved, and the rest of you are doomed. No, it ought to be, listen, I understand that I have not been in right relationship with God, but he has drawn me into him. He has put people in my life to draw me to him. He has presented this Jesus to me, whom the Jews crucified, and he said, I love you so much, I am giving him to you if you will only believe in your heart and confess in your mouth that he is my son and he died for you. And he rose from the grave to conquer death just as he wants to do for you. I don't know about you, 
but that's relatively easy in compared to all the things I should be doing to secure my salvation through works. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what any of you are doing in church this morning. You should be out serving lots of people who need help because you're wretched sinners and you are way behind. I mean, just think about that for a second. Can't come to church this Sunday, Pastor, because I sinned a lot this week and I need to be out there serving people. Hey, Pastor, I can't go to work tomorrow. Can you pray for me? I don't get fired because I'm such a sinner for what I did on the weekend that I need to be go making up for that somewhere. I, I know that sounds silly, but that is literally the rationale that many people have. And you know, all that really does is make you feel a little bit good for a little bit of time, but it doesn't solve the problem of salvation. Grace is what makes the right relationship with God possible. Grace is that continual ongoing work in us that presented itself as a way for God to say, I want to make you right. I want to welcome you back into the garden when I reopen it for business. And grace continues to work in our life so that we might be able to demonstrate that God has been gracious to us and that he has forgiven us and he wants to do the same thing for others so we can have the right relationship with our creator God. So my challenge this morning would, would, would kind of go along this way is do you understand how long God has been gracious to you and that even his acts that seem very disciplinarian is gracious. 268 years he endured the people of Israel living in the promised land and worshiping false idols. And he endured that for that long, hoping they would turn, teshuvah, repent and come back to him, as the Hebrew says. And they didn't do it. And so by his grace, he caused them to be exiled, and he preserved a remnant. And why did he preserve a remnant? So that we might know grace in 2021. So that he might say that I am not finished yet. So he might say that my plan of salvation for all mankind through Jesus Christ is still available for the asking if anybody will come in faith. And that whether you tell people about that, whether your life reflects a life full of grace or not, God's grace is still sufficient and available for anybody who would grab hold of that. And he's inviting us to come be a part of that. Well, I don't have special skills or training. You're right, you don't. But you do have grace, and that grace is sufficient to share that story with somebody else. And that's what God calls us to do. So many times salvation is a lot more than just a checklist. Okay, I got that covered. I'm good to go. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul would tell us means that what we're actually doing is we're taking a, a cloth that may be damp and we're wringing it out and we're getting every drop of that salvation out of our lives that we possibly can. And God is wringing that out for us and saying there's more still to be done as long as you have breath and you have life. You are wringing it out. And if that last drop were to provide cooling to the tongues of someone who is not yet in Hades, then perhaps they'll experience grace. And so I'm going to keep ringing you out. I'm going to keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling so that others may know, so that others may come to the right relationship with God. Our key idea again this morning comes back to all this. It says, I believe a person comes into a relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as Christ followers, that is a fundamental foundational belief in us because any other way to come to the right relationship with God is a lie. And it is not going to work. There is but one way, and that's through Jesus. And it is by his grace and his blood 
that he covered over us and covered and blotted out our sins, that we can stand and say that I am saved. I'm not just saved from an eternity in hell. I am saved to a relationship with my creator. I am saved to a full, right relationship with him. And I'm going to walk around the garden naked if I want to, and I'm not going to be ashamed. And he's going to know where I am all the time. Doesn't that sound like fun? Don't picture that, okay? Somebody's laughing over here. I can't help it. Friends, what you believe influences the way you think, you act, and you live. And if you believe that grace is sufficient and that salvation is available for all mankind, then I'm asking you to allow that belief, that fundamental foundational belief, to influence your life in such a way that somebody asks the question, what's different about you? What do you know that I don't? It's not what I know, it's who I know. It's who I know, and I want you to know I'm saved. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the gift of salvation was poured out for us, that was given to us so that we might be able to stand and walk in right relationship with you. And so, Father, as we consider our own salvation, Lord, not what we're saved from, but who we're saved to, and the great sacrifice and what was needed for that to happen, we pray, God, that you would indeed be with us. Lord, just as David said that your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And so, Lord, whatever danger comes our way, we know that you're there. Father, just as we're reminded that our, our works are a response, not a request, we pray, God, that we would indeed do what you ask us to do. Father, we pray that in all that we do and all that you are, you would be glorified. And that we, Father, would understand our salvation and would be useful to the kingdom so that others may come to right relationship with you. Lord, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for Jesus. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. This morning, friends, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper.